Even now, at night, when I close my eyes, I can sometimes still hear her. Footsteps crunching on the gravel path, growing louder as she nears the cabin. There's a pause as she inhales and exhales one last drag on her Salem before crushing it out in the dirt. The screen door whines as she teases it open. Then she tiptoes across the rough wood floor to my bed, and on clear nights, her body casts a shadow over mine in the moonlight. It was the summer before the Beatles, before Kennedy got assassinated, before sex. I mean, other people had had it, obviously. Just nobody I knew. I was 14. She was 28. I'd never heard the L word before. None of us had. Well, except maybe L's. But they kept it pretty much to themselves in those days, for obvious reasons. I'd never heard any of the other words, either. Sexual abuse. Molested. Incest. Pedophile. I'd heard of rape, but I had no idea the term applied to me. Actually, it took me about 30 years to figure out the rape part, and that it never had a thing to do with whether or not I was a lesbian, or the fact that she was. I knew what we were doing must be somehow wrong, but I never blamed it on her. The problem was the crushing small-mindedness of society, which is how she explained it, and I couldn't afford to see it any other way without having a breakdown. That would come later. Nobody else called it rape or sexual abuse, either. How could they? Since it took place in the dead of night when everyone else in the cabin was soundly sleeping. It happened at an all-girls camp high up in the Adirondack Mountains on a freezing lake we shared with fish. For eight weeks every summer, I escaped the anger and disappointment that shrouded my family home like a permanent fog. Camp Paradox felt like my true home. Before my first summer there at age 12, I never dreamed that a quirky, possibly crazy individual such as myself could find a place among the rich alpha girls from Manhattan, Westchester, and the snooty five towns of Long Island. But miraculously, at camp everyone was, if not equal, then accepted. All for one and one for all. Even the dorks. And every cabin had at least one. Ours was Francie. She was awkward, sweet, and impressively lacking in any athletic or artistic gifts. The minute you met her, you just knew she was roadkill at school. But we loved Francie. Ditto Margie, the spoiled brat from Hempstead. Robin, our perfect fairy tale princess, who at 12 was prettier, richer, and more poised than we would ever be. And Arlene, the shy, self-effacing daughter of a cosmetics magnet. We even loved the jockette Janies and Susans who out-canoed, out-swam, and out-served us on the tennis court. That's because as soon as the bus pulled through the camp gate, our checkered histories were forgotten. Everyone was granted a clean slate. We could become someone new, someone freed from the labels our families and friends slapped on us back home. In or out, overly sensitive or mean, fast, plump, skinny, smart, retarded, 
or worst of all, average, and therefore invisible. Then there were the counselors, the bronzed, muscular goddesses we worshipped and adored. We all had our crushes. Like the war between the blue and the gray teams, or Frenching the sheets of the new girl, falling in love with the counselors was a camp custom. They were so cool, so smooth and knowing. The way they laughed and smoked and teased us. Not like any women we'd ever known, especially our mothers. Carrie, the head of Waterfront, was the queen, with her short-cropped blonde hair and blue eyes, her perfect body and pretty face, usually topped by a man's straw hat cocked at a rakish angle. We just about swooned whenever she sauntered by. She seemed so sure of herself, 